We will hear argument this morning in case 21-499, Vega versus Teco. Hey, everyone. This is Leon from Fiasco and Prologue Projects. On this week's episode of 5 to 4, Peter, Rhiannon, and Michael are talking about Vega v. Tico. In this case, which was decided earlier this year, a man was interrogated by the police without being read his Miranda rights. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say may be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to an attorney. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be provided for you at no cost. It's generally understood that police must read you your rights before an arrest so that you're aware of your Fifth Amendment right to not incriminate yourself. That didn't happen in this case, so the defendant sued the police for damages. But the court ruled against him, saying that a constitutional right wasn't violated. It's another win in the long-running campaign by the court's conservative wing to make life easier for cops and harder for everyone else. This is 5 to 4, a podcast about how much the Supreme Court sucks. Welcome to 5 to 4, where we dissect and analyze the Supreme Court cases that have ravaged our nation like long COVID is ravaging my lungs. Mm. I'm Peter. I'm here with Michael. Hey, everybody. And Rhiannon. Hi. Hello. <coughs> Everybody's struggling, I think. We're back after a uh, a summer hiatus during which uh, both Michael and I just got sick and uh, <laughs> yeah. and Rhiannon had her luggage taken. Yeah, that's right. At least temporarily by uh, in- incompetent baggage handlers. Another crisis that we have to talk about is that I got terrible lash extensions. Oh, is that what I'm looking at right now? Oppressive. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> I will beat your ass. <laughs> you hear a lot of laughing and then coughing in this episode, too, yeah. by the way, just to prepare yourselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think the coughing, Michael's coughing will probably be edited out. Mm-hmm. However, you should, listener, you should just know that the reality is, is that Michael has a hacking cough. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Leave that one in. Yeah. yeah. I got COVID a few weeks ago, and I only have two lingering side effects. One is a little bit of a cough. And the other is that two to three hours after I wake up every single day, I'm tired again, no matter how much sleep I just got. Yeah. Yeah. The great news is that this has actually regularized my sleep schedule because I've been going to bed at a normal hour now. Mm -hmm. I'm sleeping like a normal person. It's kind of I don't mean to say that it's a blessing because it will probably take five years off my life. But (laughs) there's been been a silver lining. Let's put it that way. That's great. All right. We're back after a hiatus that was either three weeks or four weeks, depending on whether or not you're a premium subscriber. Mm-hmm. And today's case is Vega Vitico. This is a case about Miranda rights. And specifically, it's about whether you can sue for damages if your Miranda rights are violated. As you probably know, there is a 1966 case called Miranda v. Arizona, where the Supreme Court held that the statements of people in police custody cannot be used as evidence unless those people have been informed of certain constitutional rights, namely the right to remain silent and to consult with an attorney. Hence, every police officer and in every movie and TV show since then informing suspects of those rights upon arrest. So the question in this case is whether if the police do not inform you of your so-called Miranda rights, you can sue them for damages for violating your constitutional rights. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the Supreme Court, in a 6-3 to three decision written by Sam Alito, says 
No, you can't, because Miranda rights aren't really constitutional rights. Mm. So, Re, take it away in the background. Yeah, yeah. You know, there isn't a really long story here. I think most of what this case brings up is more about, like, the long-term viability of Miranda. Yikes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Which we will get into. But just to give a little bit of background, this case started back in 2014 when a Los Angeles County sheriff deputy named Carlos Vega was investigating an alleged sexual assault committed by Terrence Tico. So Vega went in to interrogate Tico at Tico's work And Vega, the officer, did not give Tico any Miranda warning before starting the interrogation. During the interrogation, Tico did give a confession that was then used against him at trial. He had a couple of trials, actually. The first trial ended in mistrial based on other grounds that aren't relevant here. And then finally, in his trial that actually led to a jury verdict, the jury actually found him not guilty. He was acquitted, right? But Tico said his confession was coerced and he was never given his Miranda rights. So he sues for money damages under the civil rights statute, uh, which is known as Section 1983. And that statute, of course, provides that for constitutional violations, individuals can sue for damages. So that's basically what happened. Those are the kind of low level on the ground facts that bring this case up to the Supreme Court. Right. So let's talk about the law a little bit. And before we get into the opinion, it's important to really understand Miranda v. Arizona. Right. Yeah. Uh, You have these constitutional rights, uh, the right to an attorney in the Sixth Amendment, the right against self-incrimination, known as the right to remain silent in the Fifth Amendment. So what the court held in Miranda was essentially that for those rights to have any practical meaning and effect, suspects in police custody need to be informed of those rights, and a valid interrogation can proceed only after they've waived the rights or exercised them. What's a bit unique about this rule is that it's prophylactic, meaning it's preventative. It's sort of proactively protecting the person's rights. Right. The Constitution doesn't say you have to have your rights read to you. It just says that you have the right to an attorney and and the right against self-incrimination. But the court held that it's required for your rights to be read to you in order to reduce the risk that your rights are violated. It creates that proactive or prophylactic, which is the word we'll be using quite a bit, Mm -hmm. obligation on the part of the police. And that's a crucial point to remember here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, Miranda is such a well-known decision. It's sort of, I think, hard to understand for people today, like that it's pretty controversial at the time that it upended a lot of law enforcement practice. It it generated a lot of reaction because before that, basically everything was done on a case by case basis. If you felt like you had made an incriminating statement to a police officer, you had to prove that it was essentially coerced based on like the totality of the circumstances, this like fact heavy inquiry. Yes. Mm -hmm. And the court, you know, they did something I think pretty remarkable, which was say like, the important thing is that people need to understand that they're in the adversarial system now, right? Right. Like that's what Miranda's about, uh, putting a big fucking neon light right in front of your face that says, hey, this system is here to grind you into bits (laughs) right now. (laughs) Like the people you're talking to are going to try to grind you into bits 
right now, anything you say they're going to use to grind you into bits, you have the right to expert help Mm -hmm. to prevent that. And it puts people on a little bit of a more level playing field. And law enforcement reacted very poorly to that. Uh, Politicians reacted very poorly to that. Uh, The U.S. Congress passed a law saying that Miranda is wrong and that federal cops, FBI and whatnot, don't have to Mirandize people. And that the totality of the circumstances, you know, coercion test that existed prior to that is what governed the admissibility of incriminating statements in federal courts. And uh, as I think we'll talk about later in the episode, there have been just a history of inventive police practices in the decades since on ways to get around Miranda, even when they sort of concede that Miranda is in charge. Mm -hmm. So this is like not something like Roe v. Wade, where the resistance to it has been so very public, but it has been persistent since it came down and organized and is definitely part of the conservative long-term project is weakening Miranda. And and so I think we should see this case in that light. Yeah. Uh, We mentioned it before, but there's nothing more offensive to police than requiring that they read. Uh, especially reading the <laughs> Rachel's going to spend an hour tracking in laughter from old episodes for Michael. <laughs> so, you know, there's this question of what happens when your Miranda rights are violated, when the cops don't read you your rights. One thing that happens, really the primary thing that happens, is that the police cannot use the testimony they get against you. It's excluded from evidence under what's called the exclusionary rule. The question in this case is separate. The question here is whether you can also sue the government for damages. There's a law we've discussed before and that re-mentioned Section 1983, which allows people to sue the state when their constitutional rights are violated. So very simply, can you sue the state when the cops don't read you your Miranda rights? Sam Alito says no. And the reasoning he gives is essentially that Miranda rights are not real constitutional rights. Ha! (laughs) He (laughs) He says, like, look, Section 1983 is a law that allows you to sue when your constitutional rights are violated. But Miranda rights aren't constitutional rights. They're not explicit in the Constitution. They're a prophylactic rule meant to protect your constitutional rights. Whoa. Yeah. 3D chess in the brain. There's a lot of logic going on here. So much logic. Yeah. (laughs) So the holding here is predicated on this like very fuzzy idea that there's a meaningful difference between violating a right and violating a rule designed to protect that right. Again, the right is just, for example, your constitutional right to an attorney. The rule is that the police need to inform you of that right if you're in custody. So we've talked before about what exactly a right is, because I think there's a pretty meaningful difference between how the conservatives view a right and how legal realists view it. I don't want to get too far into the theory, but we usually talk about this in the context of remedies, basically saying that If there's no remedy for when a right is violated, then it essentially means that you don't really have that right. Yeah. Um, If I say that you have a right to be free from assault, but then I assault you and there's no laws making assault illegal, then you don't really have that right. 
right? Mm -hmm. Not in any meaningful sense. This is the same basic concept. Instead of talking about remedies after a right is violated, this is about preventative measures to avoid a right being violated to begin with. Exactly. Yeah. So Alito is saying that the rule that protects the right is not the same thing as the right itself. But like, isn't it? Because (laughs) without protections for the right, do you actually have the right? Like, aren't we sort of drawing some very thin lines here if we start trying to distinguish? Uh, Alito doesn't really get into the complex theory of rights. He just sort of says this. He's like, well, you got your rules and you got your rights. Right. And that's it. Yeah. Yeah. The entire opinion is sort of based on like an argument of semantics. He says, quote, Miranda itself and our subsequent cases make clear that Miranda imposed a set of prophylactic rules. Those rules, to be sure, are constitutionally based, but they are prophylactic rules nonetheless. Okay. Yeah. Like, is there like a ideals of the Supreme Court book that like prophylactic means not a constitutional right? Like he's just labeling it (laughs) prophylactic and saying that means it's not a constitutional right. Right. Like it's absolutely semantic. Like, Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's just it just feels like there's something missing in his reasoning where he's like just going on and on about how this is a rule. And we've said that it's a it's a prophylactic rule. And that's sort of like distinct from the right. But he never actually explains in any meaningful detail why that would be the case or why you can interfere with rules that protect rights. Right. Mm-hmm. And how, if you can interfere with rules that protect rights, you can still maintain the right in any substantive sense. Doesn't get into any of that. Nope. No. So the immediate impact here is that you cannot get damages when your Miranda rights are violated. But maybe the most obvious and concerning implication is simply that if you're treating Miranda rights as completely distinct from the constitutional rights that they protect, you're not too far from just saying that Miranda rights aren't required by the Constitution at all, right? If you've already determined that Miranda violations aren't constitutional violations, then it makes sense to say that not only can you not sue for damages, but there shouldn't be any penalty for Miranda violations, period, right? Why should there be a penalty for something that doesn't technically violate the Constitution at all, right? That's the sort of slippery slope that Alito is creating here. Mm -hmm. Um, And in case that implication wasn't clear enough, Alito says in a footnote Mm. that there's a question of whether the court has the authority to make prophylactic rules at all. Mm. which is implying not only that he's thinking about overturning Miranda in full, but that he's open to overturning a host of longstanding constitutional protections on the basis that they are, quote unquote, prophylactic and therefore not actually required by the Constitution. Uh, He cites several academic articles on this point, one of which suggested the overturning of Map v. Ohio the case that created the exclusionary rule, which again is the rule that says that unconstitutionally acquired evidence can't be used at trial, to undo that case would basically completely upend criminal law and essentially make the Fourth Amendment a nullity. I mean, I, I don't think that's overstating it. No, I don't think so at all. Like playing out that hypothetical at the Supreme Court is pretty scary. Like Matt v. Ohio has to do with the Fourth Amendment, not the Fifth. It's a case that establishes, like Peter said, 
a foundational rule in criminal law, which is that if evidence is gathered against you in violation of your Fourth Amendment rights, that evidence cannot be used against you in the prosecution of that crime, right? If your house is searched and the cops didn't have a warrant, they can't use whatever they found in the house to establish that you committed a crime. If you're searched without probable cause, the cops cannot use the drugs in your pocket to show you had drugs in your pocket. It would have to be some other evidence, you know, or your case gets thrown out. This is very, very basic criminal law. I would say that, like, Most litigation in criminal law outside of trial is about exclusion of evidence based on the bad and unconstitutional behavior of cops. Right. Mm -hmm. And, And the point of the exclusionary rule is to basically like punish the state for that bad behavior to discourage unconstitutional behavior. If you violate someone's constitutional rights to get evidence, you can't use that evidence like simple as. Right. But it is also. The exclusionary rule is also a prophylactic rule. It's not in the Constitution. The court came up with it. And if Alito is on this crazy wavelength where prophylactic rules don't mean anything and and may even be open to being overturned, you know, that's super concerning. He makes a point like elsewhere in the opinion, too, that giving a 1983 cause of action um, for Miranda violations would create a mess of 1983 litigation. But he's like certainly not contending with the mess of criminal law created by doing away with right. some of these bedrock constitutional principles that, yeah, are prophylactic rules. Yeah. Right. Also, I that's got, that's got to be the worst kind of argument, which is just like, well, if we held this way, that would be a big pain in the ass, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. It's this too much justice thing, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, a big part of this is that Sam Alito would love to feast on the fruit of the poisonous tree. Uh, and he's like, why can't we? Why can't we That's eat right. from the poisonous tree? It looks tree? delicious. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sam Alito is Eve in the Bible. <laughs> right. <laughs> Give me that. <laughs> so, you know, the suggestion by Alito that, like, maybe the court cannot create prophylactic rules just completely bad faith sophistry. The court creates prophylactic rules all the time. And again, prophylactic just means like preventative or proactive. To use the example of Nyserpa v. Bruin, uh, which we just covered a few weeks back and where Alito was in the majority, in that case, the court struck down New York's gun licensure regime. And the court noted that the law didn't necessarily violate the Second Amendment, but might in some circumstances, depending on how it was applied. But the court struck down the law, right? Even though the law wouldn't necessarily violate the Constitution, the court struck it down as a preventative measure. Yeah. Uh, in other words, like the rule that the court handed down in Bruin was prophylactic. In Miranda, the court said that states need to read people their rights in order to prevent potential violations. In Bruin, the court says states cannot have certain types of gun laws in order to prevent constitutional violations. It's the same basic concept, right? Yeah. yeah. And I'm only using this as an example because the case came down on literally the same day as Vega. <laughs> <laughs> right. Gorgeous. Yeah. Gorgeous. There are countless other examples, right? Like um, courts strike down laws based on the First Amendment right to free speech, not because the laws directly violate free speech, but because they might chill speech, right? They, mm-hmm. Meaning right. they might in some contexts dissuade speech from happening. That's prophylactic too, right? Yeah. Alito is just drawing like a distinction here that doesn't really exist, probably because what he actually wants to say is that 
The court is from here on out forbidden from endorsing liberal bullshit and Miranda's liberal bullshit. That's what he really wants to say. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a good point to talk about the dissent, which was some weak shit, uh, (laughs) I think, from from Kagan. (laughs) You know, it's very short and it makes one point very sharply, which is like Alito's whole thing is, look, Miranda's not the Fifth Amendment. If a, if a violation of Miranda was a violation of the Fifth Amendment, then yes, you could sue under Section 1983. And Kagan's whole point is, well, that's not the question, right? Section 1983 says any rights, privileges, or immunities secured by the Constitution and laws can create a cause of action. And so Miranda is that, right? Miranda is secured by the Constitution. Everybody agrees with yeah. that, even Alito. And uh, it's a right. It's a you know, if you don't get your Miranda rights read, then your testimony is going to be admissible. And if you do, it's practically always admissible. That sounds yeah. very much like a right, you know, a, a, an on and off switch. The government has to do X in order to do Y. It's an obligation you have against the government, right? Exactly. That is yeah. a right. That is like by any definition, a right. It might not be the Fifth Amendment, right? Right. It might be a right designed to protect some deeper, more important fundamental right, foundational right, but it's still a right secured by the constitution and therefore a right uh, that you can uh, sue for damages for uh, under section 1983. And I think that's right, but I also think it's so inadequate to this, right? Yeah. I mean, obviously I am a bit of a Miranda partisan. I talk about it on the pod. I'm sure I've mentioned it many times. It's probably my favorite decision. It's certainly one of them. And I think it's a great example of the virtues of judicial activism when it is paired with pragmatism and real values. Yeah. And a realistic understanding of like the relationship between law enforcement and individuals. Right. Yeah, exactly. An understanding of like how coercive these environments are, how skilled cops are at eliciting, um, you know, incriminating statements, which they are very good at. They're they're very good at. Yeah. But so Miranda is just such easy terrain for the liberals, right? Here is a case that everybody knows. Here's a case that is well-liked by the public at large, well-known, well-liked, well-appreciated, and you should be fucking screaming from the rooftops about how great it is and how the court should be respecting it and if anything expanding on it and making sure those protections are ironclad Mm -hmm. not a fucking four-page little like i don't think you're really thinking about what a right secured by the constitution is yeah you haven't really given this the analytical clarity it deserves mr alito (laughs) like what the fuck are we doing here what are we talking about like this is where you need an ambitious alternate vision of the constitution. Yes. Right. Where somebody should be just writing a love letter to Miranda and all the ways in which it's been weakened that it shouldn't have been. And how this is just another example in this long line of weakenings and how these, these footnotes should be raising alarms that the conservatives are going to be weakening it even more. Right. Yeah. It's shameful. It is. It's a shameful missed opportunity. And if you're in the three justice minority right now, you don't have a lot of power in cases like this. So like, what the fuck are you doing with the little power you do have? Like, what is this? Right. 
Yeah. She spends yeah. an inordinate amount of time just like dicking around about the relevant precedent and yeah. fighting with Alito over the meaning of Dickerson, this case from, you know, 20 years ago or so that's highly relevant here. And it's just like, can you like understand like the stakes and sort of, you know, meet the moment a little bit more? Is it really that we are sort of stuck with a Kagan who on issues like this can only think in like these really narrow doctrinal terms. Yeah. It's sort of a bummer because like she's capable of doing more. You see it in like voting rights cases, for example. Like she has her moments where she can sort of rise to the situation and make a real point, which makes it even more depressing when she's just like farting out these little weak dissents in a case like this. Right. The missed opportunity in not explaining in this sort of full-throated, like almost like offensive way, the importance of Miranda, right? Because the point that I really wanted to make is that I think we should be talking about Miranda as a floor, not a ceiling, right? Miranda was a radical new conception in the law about the relationship of law enforcement to individuals, what law enforcement's responsibility is to individuals, right? But now, like Michael said, like conservatives have spent a couple of few generations trying to strip this back and police know how to skirt Miranda while still technically doing everything correctly by like reading the Miranda script, right? Mm -hmm. And they literally have a script sometimes. Like many police departments have their officers like carry a card that has the Miranda warnings on it and so they can just like pull it out of their pocket and read it. And the Miranda warning on its own, like let's be real, is nonsensical. It doesn't make sense to the average person. It feels very much purposefully from the perspective of law enforcement. It feels very much like a form that needs to be filled out Mm -hmm. before you can talk to the person who you actually need to talk to. Like, it's almost like you're waiting in the waiting room at the doctor's office, right? It's, we just need to get some stuff out of the way and have you initial next to these statements instead of something like, If we talk, we will be asking questions as part of our investigation into whether or not you committed a crime. Mm -hmm. Whatever you say, including your confession, if you give one, will be used as evidence that you should be charged and prosecuted for this. You do not have to speak to us and create this evidence against you. You have the right to a lawyer who will represent your interests, and you can ask your lawyer first if you should proceed with this kind of conversation, right? That is not how police give Miranda warnings. Right. Not at all. So a Supreme Court that was concerned with people's constitutional rights, concerned with the militarization of police power over communities, concerned with the state's monopoly on violence, that Supreme Court would not have allowed this to take place and certainly wouldn't be entertaining these arguments today that render Miranda even more hollowed out, right? Um, Saying that you don't have this remedy in Section 1983. Miranda should have been the floor, a foundation on which to say, you know, the police have serious obligations to people and they have to comply with rules that make sure they do not violate people's rights. Like, we don't have to comply to the police's rules. They need to comply to ours, right? Mm -hmm. And a world without Miranda at all just continues to erode any semblance of power and accountability you're supposed to have with the police. Without Miranda, you're basically, the Supreme Court is greasing the wheels. Police wouldn't even have to go through the formality of, of the scripted warning, right? Just a quick, like, oh, by the way, here are your rights before you engage in a discussion with armed agents of the state. They wouldn't even have to do that if Miranda eventually is overturned. And I think that should be like really, really alarming. Yeah. 
I think there's something so dark about how for 50 years, cops have been fighting the idea that they have to be like, by the way, you can get an attorney now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, we got to we gotta tell him that he's got to right. he get an <laughs> right. attorney. Yeah. Right. Like, get the, like that, that's that's all. That's that's what they've been uh, fighting tooth and nail against. It's ridiculous. And and they have. I mean, it's not hyperbole what, what Ree was saying. Some examples of ways cops tried to get around Miranda just in the recent past, just in the last 15 years. There was a case called Missouri v. Siebert that was at the Supreme Court, where in Missouri, what they would do is would just pretend like Miranda didn't exist and interrogate people without giving them a chance to get an attorney. Incommunicado, custodial detention, all their tactics of coercion for hours, six hours, eight hours, 10 yeah. hours or whatever, mm-hmm. until they elicit you know, incriminating statements. And then would take like a five minute break. And then read the person that Miranda writes and start over from scratch and throw their statements in their face and be yeah. like, so you don't want to talk about this. You just told me that you uh, set that fire and now you're going to remain silent and pretend like that was like some sort of honoring of the Miranda warnings yeah. and right. the obligations uh, and the rights that people have in those cases. That practice was disapproved by the Supreme Court. Five to four with Justice Kennedy joining the libs back in 2004. Scalia, Rehnquist, Thomas, and O'Connor all gave that practice the thumbs up. Yeah. I mean, is there any doubt where this current court would would come down in some similar workaround? In New York, in Queens County, I think it was Queens or Kings. I think it was Queens County. Up until a few years ago, the whole people, you know, in pre-arraignment jail, right, for 15 hours, 20 hours. Uh Uh-huh. You don't get a lawyer until you show up before the judge to get arraigned. Mm-hmm. And so they'd pull them out of the cell maybe 15 minutes before, turn on a camcorder and be like, hey, you're about to go in front of a judge. This is your last chance to talk to mm-hmm. us and mm-hmm. give them a list of anti-Miranda warnings. If you want to give us exculpatory evidence, now's the time. Like telling them to talk, telling them that if they exercise right. their right to an attorney, they'll be punished for that. You're not going to get a chance to deal with us or whatever. And then after giving this like anti-Miranda litany would be like, all right, and by the way, here are your Miranda warnings. And then do you want to talk or do you want to go in front of a judge right now? Like literally right. in 10 yeah. minutes. And people yeah. would cave and they would give incriminating statements. Right. They were also misrepresenting what exactly an arraignment was by implying right. that like you might be in real right. trouble if you let this go forward. You're going to court. Yeah, right now. Oh, they say that all the time because the cops are allowed to lie to you, right? Um, You know, they say all the time, we're really just trying to figure out what happened. And, um, you know, by talking to us, you're helping yourself. We can just clear some things up. Again, what you say will be used against you. Right. Right. Exactly. They are not presenting the Miranda warning in that way. Right. They're literally like negating it. Uh, Actually, what you say could help you. Exactly. And remaining silent could hurt you. So should really consider talking to us. Completely Skating the yeah. next steps in the process. That was found unconstitutional by New York's highest court, the, the Court of Appeals. But again, I don't know how comfortable I'd feel with this Supreme Court right. looking at a procedure like that. Are, are you kidding me? Especially after yeah. this case, especially after their like obvious attitude about prophylactic rules and yes. the, its constitutional but not really constitutional nature of of Miranda. Right. This is really what we're talking about here are, are people who are annoyed even by these basic obligations that yes. the government mm-hmm. has to you. Yeah. And so just like in light of that, it is worth noting that like when you look at like 
convictions that have been overturned by physical evidence, DNA evidence, new technology and all that, a huge portion of them have self-incriminating statements. People who are absolutely factually innocent who made self-incriminating statements because cops, even in the paradigm where they have to give you Miranda rights, even in like the watered down Miranda world we live in, cops are so good at getting people to talk and getting people to say incriminating things that they get factually innocent people to make self-incriminating statements on the record without a lawyer present all the time. Like that is incontrovertible. Yeah, it happens all the time. And conservatives want to make it that easier for cops to do. Like that's what we're talking about here. The idea that cops don't have enough leeway in these situations is so completely fucking detached from reality Mm -hmm. that it's not even like worth discussing. It just has absolutely no relation to what's happening on the ground. Mm -hmm. Exactly. By the way, we will at some point cover the uh, 2010 Supreme Court case where they held that in order to invoke your right to remain silent, you have to say it out loud. <laughs> you can't just, and actually remaining right. silent wasn't enough. Yeah. <laughs> you, can't, you can't just be silent. God damn <laughs> One of the most absurd cases I, I've ever encountered. And the only reason we haven't done it yet is because I don't even know what else to say about it other than just like, you fucking kidding me with this? Right, like how yeah. fucking stupid is this? Welcome to my world, y'all. So it's not a right to remain silent then, you right. dumb fuck. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Try explaining that to a client. Right. 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 They just look at you like, what the fuck? (laughs) Right. And, you know, and circling back to like this particular case and what it holds, which is that you can't get damages in these situations. Important to realize how much leeway that gives cops who might just want to roll the dice, right? Because if you're not risking damages, then the only thing you're really risking in these situations is that the evidence is not admissible at trial. There are situations where you're probably never going to get that evidence anyway. So if you take away the potential penalty of damages, cops might decide, well, let's just roll the dice, violate the Miranda rights and see if we can get something here because we're not going to get it through any other means, right? It just sort of creates a situation where the incentives for police are increasingly fucked up if someone can't get damages for violations of Miranda. Yeah. And, you know, I keep circling back to that footnote uh, where Alito suggests that maybe we should do away with all of the so-called prophylactic rules in our jurisprudence. I mentioned earlier that that's bad faith bullshit, which it is. But when you're analyzing bad faith bullshit, it's important to drill down into what the person is actually trying to accomplish, which in this case, I think, is just the severe weakening of protections for criminal defendants under the Constitution. The Fourth, Fifth and Sixth Amendments especially rely on proactive courts uh, and proactive government institutions to protect the rights that they contain. Rights against unreasonable search and seizure, against self-incrimination, the right to an attorney. Yeah. And- Alito is advocating for like a very dark vision of the Constitution where those rights are in practice essentially unprotected, right? Mm -hmm. Without proactive rules like Miranda and like the exclusionary rule, those rights don't really exist. They're just an idea. At most, you could sue for damages, but that's only if there's a law in place saying you can, like there you know, happens to be here in Section 1983, the Constitution itself, according to Sam Alito, does not protect 
those rights in any way. They're right. just yeah. sort of there. It's just a statement of your rights with no meaning. Not to mention that even if you can sue, so even if the court says, okay, yes, that's a constitutional right, and if you violate it, you can sue, you still have to work your way through the web of like the various immunities that the court has given to cops, prosecutors, and judges, because apparently the court can make up all sorts of rules to protect the agents of the state, but is not allowed to make up rules to protect normal citizens. And not to mention, it's just a fucking perverted vision of like the court's power to say that the court can strike down entire laws, but like can't tell cops to read people their rights. Right. right. <laughs> just, yeah. what, just what what is that like understanding of the court's power? I, I yeah, truly don't get it. It's stupid. It's depressing because I think like a better view of the court's role in enforcing the Constitution would be close to the opposite, right? Wary of striking down laws, but aggressive in proactively protecting constitutional rights. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. That would be, you know, I think a more reasonable way to understand the court's sort of position vis-a-vis the citizen. Sam Alito thinks it's like completely the opposite, just... (laughs) The role of the court is to strike down liberal laws and yep. uh, and allow the agents of the state to run wild on your ass. Exactly. There's just something very precious about doing this episode this week, talking about like the Supreme Court, like stripping defendants of these rights against self-incrimination and all that and blah, blah, blah. And then it's like Trump judges being like, well, Donald Trump gets a special master. Yeah. Right. If anybody ever wants to do anything any sort of criminal investigation into him at all. Right. There's like a whole special procedure that he gets that yep. nobody else gets. Yeah. Law for thee, not for me. Completely different legal artifice that he exists Well, in. he is the court's very special boy. Yep. That's literally it. That's what the court is holding. Yeah, that's yeah. it. I mean, if you read the opinion, it, it is. It's exactly. like his reputational damage is so important mm-hmm. and his status within the Republican Party in politics is so important. That he is a special boy who gets special rules. Yeah. It's pretty fucking. It's been a very annoying week for having to explain to lay people what a special master is. Because <laughs> it's one of those things where you're like, this is fucking bullshit. And then you have to explain various aspects of uh, discovery rules <laughs> before they can like understand your anger. You know? Yes. Right. Right. It's very annoying. Very annoying. <laughs> yeah. It's it's like something that is like totally opaque unless you are like fully in the legal weeds. But then if you are in the legal right. weeds, it's like are you fucking kidding me? Like, are, you, are you for real? Like this is like what, what are you what planet are we on? Swear. Swear, dude. Swear. Yeah. <laughs> Swear that this is real. Unbelievable. <laughs> That opinion is like, I, I, it's been a nice little um, reminder that like while the Supreme Court has been relatively silent, conservatives are still just sort of running wild in the lower courts. Mm-hmm. Like you're never free of it, you know? No. What they've built is here to just drive you insane year round, uh, regardless of the Supreme Court calendar. Yeah. Next week, Minor v. Happersett case from the 1870s about whether women should be allowed to vote. Won't spoil it for you, but it doesn't go great. (laughs) Follow us on Twitter at 54pod. Subscribe to our Patreon, patreon.com slash 54pod, all spelled out. 
for premium and ad-free episodes, special events, all sorts of little perks. We'll see you next week. Five to Four is presented by Prologue Projects. Rachel Ward is our producer. Leon Nafok and Andrew Parsons provide editorial support. Our production manager is Persia Verlin, and our assistant producer is Arlene Arevalo. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY, and our theme song is by Spatial Relations. <laughs>